All right. Hello there, mom. And if anybody else happens to have picked this up by now, we know mom's listening. Yeah, of course. Maybe your mom as well. I don't know. Likely not. (laughs) In the house, we got Pete, an OPP officer currently of 23 years on the force. And then to talk today about uh, operational stress injury and PTSD and how it affects and affects the uh, force he joined and what it's like today and whatever else he decides to throw in there. (laughs) So, Pete, over to you, your bio. By the way, I could find out how much you uh, made last year, but I couldn't find out fuck all else about you. Well, I'm glad. I'm glad they print that every year. Why not? <laughs> I meant back in the 90s when that number looked big, that would, would have been impressive. But now that doesn't look big, nor is well, it Well, see, this all paying of, your taxes. It looks goddamn huge to me. The way I look at it is you take that number and, and lose 60% of it. Because that's what goes to the tax man, and then I take away what. What's okay, left we've over. already gone down a rabbit hole. We didn't need to go down. <laughs> There's Here's, gonna be lots of rabbit holes. <laughs> I have a feeling. Here's the point: if I end up going down a rabbit hole, you fucking reel me in, and if you go, I reel you in. That's There's a beer in works. front of me. We're going down rabbit holes on purpose. <laughs> uh, okay, so as I said, we got Pete. Uh, over to you, Pete. Give us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, sure. So I uh, have in my 23rd year of policing in the province of Ontario, and. Spent some time in a few different departments. In other words, I couldn't keep a job. I managed to come up here in 2005 and uh, been up here ever since, enjoy the area. And so I uh, managed in 2006 to get myself onto a specialty unit. They obviously didn't do a great background check. So you must be the guy that breaks things. (laughs) Every team needs a guy who breaks things. (laughs) You're not the thinker. Oh, hey, enough ball busting already. Why, Why are you here? I don't know. You invited me. Well, you're kind of some sort of free beer. (laughs) You're some sort of good beer too. Uh, You're an expert. Well, if not an expert, you're a peer counselor, are you? I am. I've been doing peer counseling with the OPP for, uh, well, I guess 10 years now. So I started in the program when nobody knew it existed. And uh, I got into it because uh, I had watched a peer of mine going through some trouble and and it... uh, Made me realize I didn't have all the answers to all the questions. And uh, you sort of reflect on that and realize that it would be nice to have some information to help your peers out because as they go down these deep, dark holes, you're supposed to be the ones to pull them out. So, Right. We'll get, we'll get back to that in a second. Um, you, you yourself, what, what kind of training did you get to become a peer counselor and how did you... Uh, you, I don't imagine you describe yourself as an expert on uh, no, OSI. No, I don't think anybody's an expert on that. But no. uh, how, how would you time, differentiate between the two as well? Yeah, I think at the time uh, I was approached by a supervisor of mine that I had a lot of respect for, and it turned out he was also a supervisor of this peer support unit. And I didn't know much about it at the time, and uh, he recruited me into that program, and I think that's really how that program works best is when somebody sees somebody that might be good, whether it's because they have a lot of respect from their peers at the office, uh, whatever the case may be that they think that other people will turn to them in their time of need, then that's a person to get on board. So after getting recruited that way, uh, they send you on a a week-long course. It's run by uh, some civilian psychologists and it's essentially just tools in the toolbox. There's no big secrets. There's some what's not to do for sure and, and some things to do and sort of give you the, uh, the parameters in which to work, especially in our industry. It's no secret 
that uh, anybody that you are dealing with is going to know the Mental Health Act forward and backwards, and they know that when they say certain magic words, that it's going to make it so that you have to act upon those words. So a lot of the training had to do with what if that guy says those magic words, do we ignore and them? And what are the magic words? The, the magic words are anything along the lines of, I intend to hire myself, I want to die, I don't want to live. Uh, these sort of things that give you, in our world, the Section 17 Mental Health Act apprehension requirements. It's not a, a, a may, it's a shall, yeah. uh, just like when we deal with civilians. So sometimes that makes those conversations difficult because you want somebody to be open and honest uh, but they also have to know the ground rules of the fact that if you say those certain things, we go from a peer counseling role to a now I have to, you know, enact Section 17 of the Mental Health Act and we're going to the hospital. Doesn't that kind of uh, not wreck what you're doing, but doesn't it um, interfere with what you're trying to accomplish? It can. And that's when I think that good recruiting uh a good connection with the with the person that you're helping who's called you, where you can have that honest conversation yeah. and be able to say, listen, I'm here, anything you need, but you and I both know. If you go down that road, uh, just like if we were out together dealing with your neighbor who says those magic words, we have to go to the hospital. So we talk about anything. And in, in fact, if you say those words, I'm coming to the hospital with you anyways, so yeah. we can just continue the conversation there. So do you find it more often than not guys do say the so-called magic words? Uh, I can be honest, in 10 years, nobody's said it. It's when you give them the little preamble, I, I think it puts it into place that uh, I'm here to talk with you. I'm here to help you work things out, give you some tools in the toolbox. Uh, but if you're just going to spout off and you're going to say that stuff to get attention, yeah. Uh, that's not what I'm here for. If you and I are having an honest conversation, you actually say those words, you're asking for my help, and I'm going to give you that help, and we're going to go to the hospital. Right. So I think a lot of guys, it puts them in a check and just sort of creates that ground rules of, of what the conversation is going to be. We can have a beer, we can have a coffee, we can go for a run, whatever the case may be. But you and I both know if we go down that road, yeah. where we're going to end up. And that's fine if that's where we end up. Well, you as a peer counselor, what's your aim? Like, is it to get them the medical help? Because obviously if somebody says they're going to eat their revolver or do themselves harm or whatever. Yeah, I think for the most part, my aim always was, because a lot of times you're going to go in blind. That person's called you or, a, or another peer of yours has identified that, you know, so-and-so is not doing well. And so a lot of times you don't have a lot of the answers to the questions that you pose to yourself before you walk through their door or meet up with them at a coffee shop. So I think it's just to create uh, sort of a rapport. What is it that, that you're struggling with? You know, is it, is it alcohol? Is it divorce? Is it finances? Is it you've got an ill child? Are you dealing with cancer yourself? What is it that you're dealing with? And then from there, it's figuring out what tools uh, the company has to offer you, what tools the community has to offer you and what, just, what tools does the uh, the company the organization offer well i can say from being in uh policing for into my 23rd year that it's been sort of the last five years that we've made the greatest strides and whether that is pressure uh, that the, that these companies have felt from 
uh, a rash of suicides, both in the United States and Canada. Now, you keep saying companies. By that, you mean the organization you work for? The organization as well as the association. So we're not, okay. we don't have a union, we have an association. Right. But again, it supports the members. And so for a long time, there were there were things in place for the company. There was numbers to call to get either peer support and then peer support uh, would get you in contact with an outside agency, uh, EAP, uh, Chappelle, these different insurance-based agencies that are contracted by uh, different police agencies, paramedic agencies, fire agencies to help their members, sort of not necessarily a hands-off approach, but we as peer are not experts in anything. Therefore, we need to direct our people to where the experts are. So we had sort of a one-stop shop. The issue is with anything, type A personalities, are these people going to A, identify that they have a problem that requires assistance? And B, are they going to pick up the phone and dial that number to talk to somebody that they don't know? And uh, before getting into peer support, I had a lot of those questions. If I dial that number, is it like calling Bell Canada? Like, am I going to get somebody from this country? Am I going to get somebody who may have some understanding of what it's like to be a soldier, a paramedic, a firefighter, a police officer, somebody in the line, right? Like, or am I getting somebody that is fresh out of college that's picking up the phone at, at a phone answering service? And what I'm about to tell them is going to break them. And they're not actually going to be able to assist me. So <laughs> there was... I think I think we have a slight edge in the military. We don't have to go through that uh, what-if door. Yeah. And and I mean, anybody that's been through any sort of counseling, uh, regardless of the level of counseling, finding a match to you is just as difficult as picking up the phone initially. Because not everybody that you uh, get connected with is going to essentially going to connect with you and your rhythm and what it is you're looking for. And so that takes a little bit of experimentation too. So those guys who are uh, don't want to pick the phone up initially, if they don't groove with that first person, are they ever going to pick it up again? Or are they going to say, screw that, I've done this, I've gone down that road, it's not for me? Okay. What about uh, OSI and occupational stress injury and PTSD itself. Do you differentiate between the two? Between the two? Do you I care? think they're blurred, to be honest with you. Again, I'm not a clinician, so it's, yeah. it's more of what the lay person understands. I think that for me, when I look at uh, PTSD, PTS, that's something that's been diagnosed by a professional. It's, it's that you've been involved in whatever the traumatic incident has been, civilians, it could be a car accident that could send them off the rails for a couple of years for military. It's, it's that ready up process. It's going overseas. It's deploying and it's dealing with those things for first responders. It's the daily grind of seeing what you see. And so PTSD for me, when I look at it as something that I have reached out, I have sought expert advice and assistance and I've been deemed to have this disorder per se where when I look at OSIs uh, and, I, and I think about operational stress, I think about, for me, that's the daily grind. It's the 10 domestics a day. It's the child assaults. It's the motor vehicle accidents that you're pulling people out of. It, it's these things that, for me, lead up to possibly having a diagnosis of having PTSD. I don't believe everybody in my industry has PTSD. No, I believe that there are enough 
operational stress injuries and things that you see and experiences you go through that you could definitely lead uh, that could lead you to having trouble dealing with all of those things and being diagnosed with PTSD. But I don't think the two are are always together. Right. And in fact, a little FYI that I just learned yesterday myself, I was talking to Frank, who's a psychologist in Ottawa. Great guy. You still hear me all right? No, but I, I relapse <laughs> just fine. <I'm laughs> all right. So uh, PTSD is an actual diagno- diagnostic or a diagnosis. So it comes from the DSM-5, the mental disorder uh, book. And OSI itself is uh, more of a... And a PTSD has to uh, involve death in some way. Okay. So either you're in a firefight, um, you're coming under fire, you fear, fear for your life, you come upon death, which in your case is frequently... Um, and OSI just needs to be stressors, like you, you, you said. And actually what happened, the uh, Canadian military coined the uh, phrase OSI uh, some years ago to try and uh, destigmatize what was looked at as, as a weakness. Right. And as in your job, as in my ex-military job, that's what the troops thought of it as. Yeah. And it's slowly coming around, but it's taking some time. So OSI... Um, is also uh, connected to uh, weak leadership. So if the uh, team feels that they're not being led well or their leader is not looking after their best interests, it can cause an OSI right. as well. Would you uh, agree with that? Uh, that makes sense to me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Again, you, you have the medical background. I'm just a grunt on the road. Yeah, but I mean, for uh, just FYI, and because my mom is interested in these yeah. sort of things. <laughs> so uh hi mom yeah Steve's mom. <laughs> she's not listening <laughs> i'm pretty sure it's just me being this lonely not a call in the show? night no no <laughs> although we should try that yeah this is That's dangerous weird. yeah rabbit hole yeah all right um so i know i know the military is slow to uh change to adopt change and i'd imagine any large institution like the opp would I be wrong in saying they're slow to uh, affect and accept change? I would agree that any of our organizations are slow to adopt it because it's, to be honest, it's it's not their it's not their primary task. They're very good at their primary tasks, whether that's soldiering, or whether that's policing, or firefighting, or or paramedicine. They're very good at that primary task, and once you ask them to go outside of that, I think that they lose their footing. And I think that that's what we've seen over the years is there's been a lot of attempts by different organizations within the policing community to better it. And a lot of them for the right reasons, because they're seeing their guys and girls suffering and they're trying to provide them with some sort of support. And so sometimes that support is great and sometimes it's not. And well, I let's think that let's we interrupt lose, you there for a minute. Yeah. Let's sort of oh, hold on to that thought. Then. Yeah, I do that. <laughs> Hold on to that thought for a minute and start when you were a rookie, when you first got into the organization. It, what, if anything, did you hear about or hear about um, PTSD, OSI? Um, and was it something that you were to avoid talking about or avoid showing? And has that changed for the better or worse over the last 23 odd years you've been in? So 
we're going to date ourselves. I was the first year of graduated licensing, so that's how old I am. When I got into policing, I was 19. And although I entered policing with what I thought was a fairly good understanding of policing, I come from a deep policing family background. Uh, oh, I had, I'd mind the deep criminal background. <laughs> <laughs> and yet we're sitting at the same table enjoying a drink. And I'm not sure if your background is worse than mine or uh, I'm not so, so sure. <laughs> we'll talk about it in another podcast. Yeah, they say cops are the best criminals, right? No. <laughs> I believe it. So at 19, when I got in, you're, you're overwhelmed just in general by the job. Yeah. Uh, I can say... Wholeheartedly, I was not prepared at 19 to be dealing with what I was dealing with and seeing what I was seeing and arresting grown men who were battling tough moments in their life that I could never at that age understand. Yeah. And so uh, I grew through that uh, process where I had to figure out what empathy was and and sympathy and and how to operate and how everything wasn't just black and white and you just arrest everybody or you give a ticket to everybody and and I think just like having to figure that out on my own because nobody can really teach you that that comes with experience I, I think that the the operational stressors how to deal with it was very much the same it was you'll figure it out um, because what could affect my 40 year old partner with 20 years on may not affect me at all but that's because he's been stacking it on for 20 years and i'm brand new and think that that is the coolest thing i've ever seen yeah it's not affecting that side of me and so it doesn't hit you in the face for those first couple of years because you're so new and you're experiencing you never think for a second that you need to suck anything up. It's all cool. Every death is cool because it's a learning experience yep. of your job, that investigative process. And and everything's the first, so you're so overwhelmed by dealing with the actual investigative side. You don't You'll never guess what I saw today. Yeah. yeah. Or did yeah, today. You shouldn't always tell people who aren't in your industry <laughs> the coolest thing you saw today because to them that's not fucking cool at all. So, no. I, yeah. So, just a sidetrack rabbit hole here. I have told civilian friends about an incident, yeah. and they look at you like, what the fuck are you laughing at? Well, that was and fucked it, up. It comes down to why we all have extremely dark senses of humor is it's a coping mechanism. And to us, what we think is funny, I guess is very traumatic to people who don't work in our industry. So we yeah, may have just given them all the time to learn that. <laughs> yeah. So at the start of my policing career, there was no knowledge that, uh, I was going to be affected by the things I was seeing. And there definitely was no outward education of, hey, if you're affected, here are the tools in the toolbox. Here's the phone numbers. You just went uh, drinking with the boys. Yeah, you, every day. Yeah, Every day you did that and you told funny stories and you bullshitted the same stuff every week. And you saw that bravado and the machismo and all that good stuff. And you, that was fun too. You didn't realize until years later and stacking experience that a lot of that was a coping mechanism of, of hiding what was bothering you. So if you went to a scene and it was bothering you, you shit talked the people at the scene or yeah. you, whatever it might have been, you made light of a super serious situation. Right. And if any civilian ever heard you, I mean, today's day and age, they'd lay a complaint 
no problem. They don't have no clue of what you're dealing with and why you said something totally inappropriate in the moment. Right. It was because that was how you were dealing with what that you was saw. one of the tools in the toolbox. That was one of the tools in the toolbox, and at the time, the only tool in the toolbox. And and I did see a lot of guys when I first started that uh, that drinking was their number one tool, and uh, that you don't put those pieces together until you're much older. And then you realize that a lot of that is a coping strategy as well. And that takes you down a, could take you down a dark, dark hole if it gets out of control, control. if you're trying to hide too much. And, and then you fast forward uh, 20 plus years and you see the way it is now. And the young officers that are coming into the business now are being prepped. They're having these conversations at police college they're having it back at whatever organization they're going to belong to, whether Toronto, OP. Conversations like what, Pete? Like, like literal classes where they're having psychologists come in and discuss some of the coping mechanisms, some of the tools in the toolbox based on what they're about to embark on and what they could see. So those, those things, those discussions never happened. Whether if there could be an argument, those are good or bad. Um, but for the most part we've taken some giant leaps to improve those resources that are available to younger officers coming on, that they have a, a better footing of the fact that what they're about to see, because policing, when you join, it isn't like, it isn't like the military. It isn't uh, here. You're going to join for a four year contract and then you're going to reenlist for 10 or 12. You sign on the dotted line and unless you quit or unless you're fired, it is, depending on the province, but here in Ontario, it is a 30-plus year career. 30 years is your yeah. full pension. Yeah. So you're going to do the same shit every day for 30 years. Well, it's about a decade ago you guys switched from 25 to 30, wasn't it? So in Ontario, I started in 98. It has always been 30. The RCMPs had 24 in a day, and I don't know if that's changed. I've never thought about my pension because it's always seems so bloody far away <laughs> and i know it's not now <laughs> I can, but i still I can I tell feel you like if i'm looking not. towards it that's a dangerous game to play so but you started this career saying 30 years and if you had some good life experience and you had an education then maybe if after 10 years you thought the shit's not for me yeah well then you have something to fall back on Somebody like me, I started at 19. I had no post-secondary school education. This is what I was going to do. And I had told myself uh, I was constable for life. I didn't care about promotion. I wanted to work the road till the day I retired, if my body and my brain allowed me to. And yeah. that's still my goal. And so you found out real quick that 30 years of working the road is a long fucking time. Yeah. And it takes a beating on you. And so... The old system, there wasn't any known highlighted assistance in place. Now, nobody in my my organization can say, I didn't know that I could call this number. I didn't know there wasn't a peer support team. I didn't know that I couldn't uh, get full coverage for my psychiatric or psychologist care. The, the organization I'm in, and we can all slam our organizations, but there's also a lot of positive things that these organizations have done. And the one of them that I think that ours has really done is highlighted to at nauseum, to be honest with you, all the things that are out there. And I mean, the danger could be you do it at nauseum and you put it in people's head that they, sh 
Well, I, they need I don't to think I have PTSD, yeah. but I feel like I probably should. Yeah. Right. There's, <laughs> there's that danger, but we had three suicides a few years ago uh, in the OPP alone in a cl- very close amount of time. And you realize, although our organization is almost 8,000 people, you realize how close, just like the military, how tight things become mm-hmm. real quick because you know, you're one degree of separation. Everybody knows somebody who knew that guy. And, yeah. and what was he going through? And holy shit, well, I have the same problems as him. Like, am I one bad shift away? Am I like, it started to pose a lot of questions for a lot of people. Yeah. And the demands on the organization beca- became extremely aggressive and rapid. You need to do something for our members right now. The reality is when you sit back and you step off the soapbox is a lot of these people have issues going on in their own life that have nothing to do with the first responder world or the military right. world. But but there could be a tipping point, you know, a bad call, a bad day. They all add to the straw and the camel's back. That's right. And so what, if anything good came of that, was that it blew up in the media and it forced that microscopic lens onto my organization in particular more than any because we represent the province we're not just a small contractual police department or we're not the toronto police department one of the biggest in north america we were the province so we shouldn't have these problems and so it put a political pressure and we already had amazing things in place we just weren't you know shouting them from the rooftops and 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 i think what it did is it it allowed the organization to go, okay, all the things you're demanding, we already have, but maybe we haven't done a great job at marketing our marketing, uh, uh, marketing these things. So let's do that now. And that spawned a, a full-time wellness unit. And what I liked is that they didn't just go into one silo and say wellness. So here's your psych- psychiatrist or your psychologist. No, we realize that's so many different things. There's new, a nutrition component. There's an exercise component. They really did a great job of saying, hey, if you're depressed, but, but your root cause of depression is that you're overweight because we knew 40% of coppers in North America are overweight. Yep. It's a shitty job. You're, you're high, high stress, high cortisol. Uh, what are you doing when you get home? You've sat in a cruiser all day or you fought with some asshole. Your body hurts. So you go home, you're drinking beers, you're not doing the right stuff yeah. to, to keep your mind and your body sharp. So if you're part of that and you think, my depression has all these different factors to it, and one of them is I'm overweight, so I'm pissed off. I don't like to look in the mirror. I don't like the way I feel at home. Well, now we have a, a number you can call that a guy's paid full time to help you dial in your nutrition, give an exercise plan. And it's not this, hey, like just go bro lift. Like it's science-based and it's we're going to start where you're at we're going to meet you where you're at and we're going to bring you to wherever your goal is yeah. and now that exists now it's something that never existed in policing you, See, wanna, that, you, you guys have the you have an, uh, an advantage right there um the military doesn't have anything like that like we don't have a union or a, an association although many of the world's militaries do like the germans and the dutch and it works great for them I mean, the association doesn't screw with tactical decisions. They just yeah. look after the social welfare of uh, of the soldiers. Well, Canada has none of that. And uh, we're, it's not really a rabbit hole. It's more of a little hole in the shade. Um, where you guys have that association, the military doesn't have that. So when Trudeau can say something like, 
you're asking more than we can give. Oh. <laughs> Wasn't that the most ridiculous statement? Well, you know. that and talking moistly, like yeah. fuck. Anyway. <laughs> Close your eyes when you say that, Steve. Talk moistly. I didn't look directly at you. <laughs> so when he said something like that, and, and the public, once Afghanistan was gone, there was no more lining the highway to heroes. Military was back in the fucking closet again. Yeah. Uh, so we, we don't have that association to bring bring uh, political pressure to bear. So you guys, I think, have a, an advantage in that situation. Yeah. And, I, and I would agree because even our command staff, uh, that command staff changes every three to four years, right? The commissioner or a chief of police or a chief of fire, they leave, they've got their contract, but they, I think they rise to those positions wholeheartedly believing that they can make a great amount of change that they've watched. And, and I think the advantage to policing too is to be a chief of police, you have to start as a constable. You have to be a road guy or a road girl. You have to start. So when you get to the top, there is a certain amount of, yes, you've pissed people off along yeah. the way. There will always be these social circles. And There's all always politics in any job. Yeah. But for me, when, I, when I'm at the bottom, because I'm at the bottom, and I look up, I can at least say that that person's probably spent... When you 20, say you're a bottom, what do you mean? Well, I'm a constable on the road. I work night shifts. I go to bar fights. Uh I have a lot of guys with my kind of time on have gone into specialty investigation roles. They've gone for promotion. And and that's a career aspiration that a lot of people have. Yeah. And, and I didn't have. I, I enjoy being at the bottom. I, I'm a big believer that shit always rolls downhill, but it splashes back up super quick, right? And if you're at the bottom, you, you get a little on you, but... <laughs> What are they going to do to you? Make you work night shift? Like, who gives a shit? Like, that's what I enjoy. Or shifts, period. Yeah. So, uh, but those guys at the top, they had, they had their time at the bottom, however brief it might have been. And so a lot of them go there with great intentions. And But that great intention, when you look at an organization, whether it's the military, whether it's policing in a bigger organization, if you're there for four years and you make a decision day one, year one, how long does it take to filter down to the bottom, right? It takes a long, long time. Yeah. You approve a piece of equipment, day one, year one, five years later, I might get it. And that's if the next guy doesn't cancel it because he wants to spend the money somewhere else, right? It's just like the government. It's it's political. So buying a hat, for instance, yes, took years. So the associations were always there to checks and balances, right? They don't have union power like the teachers or like the auto workers where hey, we don't like what you're doing, we're striking. I want to put pressure on you. We can't do that. We're an essential service. And for a lot of years, we had weak associations. And by weak, it was, they just weren't willing to draw a line in the sand with the employer and say, this is a problem. It needs to be addressed priority one right now. Because they didn't have the power to bully. Right. And so we've gone through a few iterations of associations and a few different commissioners but where I find we are right now, especially on the mental health side of it, is instead of being two sides of the line, they're actually together, which is probably the best thing that you can have happen, is that they're both fighting for the same thing, which means they're not sitting at a table for months and months and months, uh, scratching with red ink the, the one word they don't like in that new policy. They're, they're literally sitting down as a team and... I can only speak for my organization now because I'm far removed from the previous ones. But where I am 
now and what I've seen as a peer supporter, but also just as a senior guy, my organization, as far as I'm concerned, and some, some may argue, um, is we're on the tip of the spear now. We've been forced to go there and they've taken decisive action and the resources are there. And out of that also, uh, the review by the government and the ombudsman of Ontario essentially, I mean, put a big shit stick on the OPP and left everybody else alone, even though we were all <laughs> doing the same thing or, or not doing the same things, is out of that came the WSIB being forced or asked, however that works, okay. to say that it's presumptive now that first responders have OSI PTSD. Because the problem was before, the biggest stigma was, if I say I've got a problem, are they going to take my gun away, yeah. take my duty belt away? Am I now going to sit in front of a computer and file sheets of paper? And yes, at the extremes, that has to happen, but that's a safety thing. Yeah. Totally different. But that was part of the, the big stigma, like that a two-pronged stick. It was, what You're do my buddies think? Ask, and then what are what's my organization going to do to yeah. me? Because let's be honest, if you take me off the road where I'm stable and you put me at a desk, does that now make things worse for me? Do I lose my identity? Am I pissed off when I go home? Am I worse off than I was before? That's the danger of that. Yeah. And so with this presumptiveness, I think it removes a lot of stigma. It also provides the guys the financial support necessary to seek treatment. Treatment is not cheap. No. Like whether you're 150, 200, depending if you're doing social work, uh, psychologist, psychiatric, you're on a six to nine month waiting list. Uh, and then you no go fast there. Tra- tracking for you guys. What's that? No fast tracking for you guys for mental illness. Historically, uh, no. I, I prefer to say mental injury. Yes. So uh, historically, no. You would call up whoever you're local. You would hope to find somebody that has a military background and emergency service background because then when you walk in and tell them your stories, they don't look like they're now traumatized, right? They're, they've got the tools in their toolbox to help you. Uh, so that became a major issue was this waiting period for guys that really needed help. So my organization started within their wellness program. We actually now have a full-time employed, I don't know, psychologist or psychiatrist. I can't remember which one of the two. And they're Do they dr- give drugs? Pardon me? Do they give drugs? I don't know. Well, I if if they give drugs, they give their psychiatrists. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm not. I don't know. This happened within the last year. So that that doc is fully employed, is a traveling roadshow, going to regions, doing uh, seminars and and different things, traveling to detachments and talking, which again reduces the stigma. Right, it's now right there, and has that from what I've heard, super good in the sense of if you want to talk to me, if you're here and you're saying you're speaking my language. You've, you've identified a whole bunch of things, a laundry list of things that I have. Uh, they're a direct line. Now, they're not going to become, from, from my understanding, they're not going to become your personal psychiatrist or psychologist. However, they're going to do the work to find you in your area a vetted service provider that can do first responders, military, which... I think eases the mind of a lot of people, somebody that might get them. Well, speaking of eases the mind, that's one of the things that uh, 
that helps prevent OSI or PTSD is with your job and my past job, you're going out the door constantly. So you're not, you're not say kicking in a door and arresting some dirt bags from doing whatever they're doing. And, uh, then immediately the next day get into a, a shooting situation and not have time to, uh, to, to de-stress. Yeah. You know, you're just constantly going out the door. So are you guys getting the opportunity to rest to after say what's considered to you guys a critical stress? I'd like to say yes, but I think it's, it's really each incident is its own. And, and I say that, and what I mean by that is, there are laws and processes that govern us. So in Ontario, we have the Special Investigations Unit. So their job is essentially a civilian oversight body. They ensure that any time uh, a member of the public that we're dealing with is injured, whether it's serious bodily harm, death, sexual assault, that it's investigated. And we can go over whether they're legitimate and how they do their business or the pressure that they feel politically and current under the current uh, social unrest, how they feel to do their job. But, but their job by and large, I agree with. Uh, and I think most good coppers will tell you oversight is a hundred percent required because it keeps everybody in check. Cause the good cops will always be the good cops. Yeah. And the odd guy that I could say in my career, and, and I will say it's odd to find people that you look and go, you should not be here, right? Like, we're going to take you out. You should not be here. It's so rare. And although the, the public perception with everything going on is that that has run rampant, uh, it's not. So with the SIU, if we are involved in an incident that requires them to investigate, there are policies and procedures that require uh, officers to do a certain number of tasks. So if we're involved in a, in a shooting incident, there will be a subject officer, that is the officer or officers who caused the injury that's to be investigated, so discharge their firearm, there'll be subject officers. Then there'll be what's called witness officers. So those are the other officers that were there, that maybe they were the non-lethal coverage, and it was a lethal situation. So officer A discharges firearm and stopped the threat. The other officers who didn't will be witness officers. A subject officer... It's essentially treated like you would be if I was to arrest you on the street. You have rights, right? You don't have to speak. Uh, you get a right to a lawyer. You get all these different things. Where a witness officer doesn't, they shall do their notes. So to bring that full circle to your question, certain officers will get the rest required and the downtime and other officers will be thrown to the wolves without any conversation with anybody. And it's so... Okay, to tie that into my original question, which you kind of did a circle around, did it would be it would be um, correct to say that from when you got in, the the awareness of OSI and PTSD was low, um, and pretty much put on a back shelf. Guys just sucked it up to where today, twenty three years later, you're able to get counseling if you want it. Absolutely, and you have plenty of peer support. Yeah, there was no name on it back then. Right. Right. You saw one or two guys that had it, but you didn't know what they had. They just looked like they were struggling hard. Run, run, and they were the guy you didn't want to ride with. Because he either didn't come in, or if he came in, he was loaded, unkept, and his uniform looked like shit, and he just looked off. And you, we didn't have names for it. Now when you see a guy 
in the office that looks like that. Somebody everybody takes knows, and somebody says something. Somebody takes them aside and says, "You you should probably go home." But what is it that you're struggling with? You don't have to talk to me. You talk to somebody else. But you know, I think people are more, especially peers, are more willing to breach that subject with a peer than they would have been 20 years ago. Now, talk about you yourself for a second here. You had mentioned having a. I don't. I hesitate to say diagnosed with OSI, but you were found to be exhibiting OSI? Yeah, I would say that uh, probably uh, it's PTSD for me. Okay. And, you know, there's OSIs in there. There's OSIs all the time, but PTSD. And and I went and sought help uh, for it because the day-to-day stuff was fine. I could go. I could do my job great. And it, it's sort of a, a parallel I find with a lot of my peers that, that have it or believe they they have uh, some struggles with their mental health is that at work they're fine that's not where they're showcasing their issues it's at home and where, it, where they can't turn it into something else like yeah. they can't turn it into some per, perps yeah problem that's right yeah and so I was uh, I was finding that I was struggling with uh, being detached socially from everybody that I knew when I was at home, uh, I I didn't need to have hour-long conversations for the sake of freaking talking. Like, you talk for a purpose. Like, that sort of became my attitude. And, uh, you know, I was coaching a lot of hockey. So that was a great control mechanism. I was there. I created the plan. And what I was finding is, is that you always had those one or two kids on the ice that were just a royal pain in the ass. Great kids. You didn't have to look far past their parents to see where the issues came from. But... Uh, I found myself, I would just get, I would never outwardly show that anger, but I would be pissed off. And I'm like, it's hockey. They're 10 years old. Like, and I was just starting to stack these personal issues. I was uh, not exercising the way I'd always exercised. I was hoping the pager was going to go off 24 hours a day because that's what I was good at, chasing the ass end of a dog through the bush after bad guys. I knew exactly what I needed to do. Uh, you know, there was always going to be yelling and commands at the end and an arrest and a high five, you know, we all made it afterwards, but at home, my, my empathy and my tone was changing and I just wasn't that happy go lucky guy anymore. And it was starting to, starting to get me. And, and it's funny because it wasn't then that I sought help. It was fast forward several years with several, very serious incidents here in Petawawa, homicide across from my home where my kids were playing basketball that I ended up on the canine track for. Now all of a sudden I was hyper vigilant all the time. I was looking out the window in the area where that guy had been hiding that day and I couldn't shake these things. I couldn't sleep anymore. I was tense all the time. And then one day I just found myself sitting in between the wall and the washing machine in my laundry room wondering how the fuck I got there. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think it's true for a lot of guys, whether that's my rock bottom, I doubt it. Uh, I think there's always worse worse <laughs> situations than, than that. But it was the time where all the other things I could, I could talk away. Yeah. Like, oh, I, you can I'm make grumpy because I work shift work. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm angry at the kids because I haven't slept after night shift. And, yeah. you know, this broke in the house or I don't have money for that. You can 
talk away all those things, but, but being in a vulnerable position and having identified yourself as the six foot four, 260 pound tough guy. And all of a sudden you're going, you're I'm crying not, behind a washing machine. Yeah. I'm, I'm crumbling here. Yeah. Like, where do I go from here? Who do I call? And sadly, I was already a peer supporter. I already theoretically had the tools in the toolbox. And I don't ever remember thinking it won't happen to me or I'm too tough for this. I just remember that one day going, how the fuck did I get here? Yeah. Like, like all those things couldn't have possibly added up to this right here, right now, where I felt like I wasn't good at anything. I was worthless. My, my family had you know, vacated their post and I, I was alone and, uh, you know, I sought assistance at that time. And to be honest with you, the, the first counselor, I think I scared the living shit out of him because I walked in in uniform and I started to talk and then I broke down and then I looked Why'd up and uniform? he broke down and I thought, no, no, you're not supposed to break down. <laughs> you're supposed to help me. Right. So, and it's been a journey since then. And I think that just, just a second. Why did you wear the uniform that day going in to see him? I was working. It was the only time I could get an appointment and okay. calling in sick as a weak thing to do. So, right? it, no, it, it, <laughs> but that's how I ended up that day was as it, the only appointment I could get happened to be a day I was working. So it wasn't a armor or anything like that. No, no, no. However you say that. And I think that's why a lot of guys, when they go to work, that's where they feel the safest. Yeah. It is that armor. They can be, who they believe everybody perceives them to be. Yeah. Where at home, you have to be you, right? You take that armor off and the people who know you best know you best. Yeah. And so, and they can tell you all they want that you're not yourself. And let's be honest, you have friends and you have spouses that dance around those issues. And the biggest thing I say as a peer is don't dance around the issue. If somebody's not doing well, just say it. It's a, it's a good point you raise. Not your first one. You've had a couple of good points in here. <laughs> it's the beer talking. <laughs> yeah. But my, my background was medical. And one of my friends who I've interviewed uh, for, for this series, um, it was, I was amazed when she was diagnosed with PTSD that I didn't pick it up. You know, that I didn't go to her and say, what the fuck? You know, you're drinking a lot more. You're just drinking a lot more. But she, she she always seemed happy, but she was using humor to to fool her bosses that she was all right, and at the same time cover up her PTSD. So, as someone who who who's not an expert but has certainly a good background in it, missing it was like how 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 could I miss it? And so it's so easy in in any organization for a guy not to say something. But I would say like many of the people that uh, I've talked to would say, if you see anything that you sense is out of place, bring it up to the guy. Yeah. Say, is there somebody you want to talk to? You want to shoot the shit with me or whatever, but talk to the person, bring, bring it to, it might not be in their, their field of awareness yet, but maybe somewhere in that back of their melon, it is something they're uh, considering or thinking about. So, yeah. And it takes know, a strong say, person say, to put themselves in the position to call somebody out. And, and yeah. to say it and to offer help. And I know our world in the policing world, how we deal with folks suffering uh, mental health issues at the time, historically, we would dance around the issues. You know, you go to a suicide and progress call. Somebody's already called because they know this person is 
about to or talking about it, it scares them, they call 911. Right. We'd go and we used to sort of dance around the issue and we would talk to them about all, you know, all the different facets of their life. And then we would, we would through that investigation, get a sense of whether this person needed to be apprehended or whether they're just having a tough day. And what we found was that was a dangerous game to play because by not naming it, by not, not calling it out, suicide, you never ever left that house with a hundred percent confidence that you weren't going to get called back that night. And there is nothing worse as a first responder than to make the right call at the time to find out a few hours later that that person's harmed themselves. And although yeah. you may not have had any apprehension grounds at the time, we're all humans and that does not feel good. And so we've changed and, and I think we've changed over the last uh, five, six years, especially in, in my experience to where we actually name it. Now we go to a call and you're talking to Bill or Frank or whatever, and he's sitting there and he's having a drink and he just says, I'm tired of tired of it all. And we don't just dance around it. We say, are you feeling like harming yourself? Are you going to kill yourself? And a lot of people would say, holy shit, I can't believe you just said that. But the guy has to have that opportunity to say, no, I'm just spouting, or yes, I am. And then you could talk about, get right into what, if you were to do it, how would you do it? Do you have any guns in the house? Is that how you would do it? Or would you do this? And we have such greater success building that rapport because for that person, most of their family and friends have danced around the issue. Yeah. And we come in shock them, and we just give it to them. And he thinks, holy shit, did he just ask me if I'm going to kill myself? Yeah. And the old way of thinking is, that's completely wrong. Why would you ever do that? You've put yeah. that thought into their mind. You're like, no, if we're that here, there. there's a reason we're here. And and it's not for expediency. Like, hey, are you going to? Because we need to go to the hospital. Like, I got coffee to drink. It, yeah. it is because let's get down to the nuts and bolts of it. Because I'm not an expert. You're not an expert, but I know a place where it's not a perfect place, but it's a place where the people care and they can help you. And whether you don't want medication or that, it's at least a start. It's yeah. a start down the road to something that might be better for you versus sitting in your living room in the dark. But you're right about being blunt. You need to be blunt. And I, I even avoid things that are slightly vague, like, are you going to harm yourself? I ask right out, do you want to kill yourself? Are you suicidal? Yeah. Are you homicidal? Because yeah. that's always a... A fear as well and as a somewhat semi-medical professional you know i've sent guys home or out the door going he's at he's answering everything right yeah. and you're getting a good feeling but you never know are you gonna get that call back later to yeah. and re a few years back we uh, the the mental health act actually changed because the wording was very specific i had to witness it I had to see them deteriorating, not caring for themselves, being a danger to themselves or other, which is that suicidal, homicidal. And what would happen and what we found, especially as these issues became more prevalent in society, is that oftentimes you're dealing with people, it wasn't their first time. It wasn't the first rodeo. And so they would tell the husband or wife, you know, get out of the house, I'm going to kill myself. And then we would get there and they'd go, no, I'm not going to harm myself and yeah, I said that, but I'm not serious. And we would be void of the apprehension authority there because we weren't witnessing the behavior that made them a danger to themselves or others or un, unfit to care for themselves. So we'd walk away. But in the back of your mind, you're like, oh, shit. Like, I can't apprehend, but that family's in desperate need for me to apprehend that person. And so the evolution of that act and the realities of that act changed to where 
now I can take the word through investigation, obviously, that I believe he said five minutes before we got here that he was going to do this. He has the means, he has the capability, he still looks sweaty, he still looks this, and I could take the totality of the circumstances and say, you know what, buddy, you're going to hate my guts, and I don't care. I'm going to take you to the hospital, you're going to see a doctor, and if I got to put you on that gurney and I got to tie you to it, so be it, because I can't leave this house knowing that I believe you're going to kill yourself. Yep. I'm going to do my job in hopes that if if the worst that happens is you hate me forever and you see me and you just spit on the sidewalk, yep. but you're alive to spit on the sidewalk, I'm good with that. Yeah. People have been hating me for a lot of years. <laughs> well, you're an easy guy to yeah, hate. I'm, I'm an easy target, right? <laughs> okay, enough, enough of that ball busting. It's a serious topic. Yes, it no is. No ball busting. Um, what else? I got to ask you something. I think we pretty much covered everything. How do you read your own writing? Well, I, I try to read it at the same time I still have my tremor. You it's harder that? to read it while I don't have a tremor because I wrote this when I had a tremor. So I'm, I'm definitely trying to make me problem. feel sorry for you. You know they do have computers, right? <laughs> With computers. printers and big, big font. I don't have a printer. <laughs> it's busted. Um, well, I got to say, it's been great doing the interviewing of a cop rather than the cop interviewing me. Yeah, well, I bet. So You've had I, your times. Yeah. <laughs> so make sure you don't leave any spaces and sign on the uh, lines. I always knew we were an odd couple. <laughs> <laughs> you were odd and we were never a couple. <laughs> All right. So, yeah. I think we pretty much... Nobody's hiding it anymore in your organization. They've all come out of the closet. Yeah. Um, you covered what help there is for the family. Oh, what help is there for members' families? What's that? What help is there for uh, members' families? So that's a, another great uh, step we've taken. So and A great EAP, question. EAP is a great question. Oh, thank you. So EAP, which used to be the, the whatever it is, the Employee Assistance Program. Great, you could dial that number and... I never, ever used it. You used to always get the magnets when you had it. You throw it on your locker or whatever. And uh, But when you actually look at what their what their program does, so it's contracted by the OPP, and it's a civilian agency. But when you look at it, it's financial support. It's support if your parents need care and you don't know where to go. It's your kids going to college and you're stressed out. Like they have all these different things that you would never even think of that are there. But it used to be for the employee. Yeah, and it was never ever. Let's be honest; they they never in policing, and I, I still believe it's it's not what it should be. But they don't bring spouses into the fold in emergency yeah. services. They just yeah. don't like. Yeah, you get to go to the graduation, and you get to see them get their 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 badge or their fire hose, whatever they get, and and that's it. And then as a spouse, you're stuck to live with that person in the good and the bad without fully understanding what they may be going through. And, and the reality is folks that, that are married to civilians for the lack of a better term, you don't have the outlet and it doesn't mean that you should go marry emergency service workers because we're all screwed up too. But there, there's something there that if you don't have great communication from the start, it's only going to get worse. Yeah. And we, our organizations don't bring spouses into the fold. They don't bring kids into the fold. They don't make these great big community events out of detachment where it's for the family and the spouses meet each other and, and they get they, 
they get their own support network. They don't have that. Right. Like that's sometimes you're on great platoons of ten or twelve people that plus that, you're a cop's wife. How do you deal with other non cops wives? Yeah, and, there's that too. And yeah. you get you know, you take it personally when somebody's like the classic uh, all cops are asshole. I had this ticket once. Well, what were you doing? Well, why does that matter? Well, because you probably fucking got it for a reason. Yeah. But nobody ever says that, right? Every everybody knows an asshole cop or everybody knows a great cop. And the, it's always a story. So as a spouse, you're stuck with that too. You you are now, whether you have your own world and your great great career, you are part of that identity, whether you like it or not. Yeah. And so they just, they don't bring them into the fold the way I wish they would. And so- Is that changing now? It's, I don't know if the social side of that is changing, but definitely the organizational side of that is changing. EAP is now available for any member of your family. EA, EAP being what? That's that employee assistance program okay. that's contracted out. So uh, every employee is given the brochures, the magnets, and everything like that. If you are a nice spouse, you take that home, you put it on there. Because you could be fine, but you've spouted off about some shit call and a shit asshole spit in your face. You ended up having to get the HIV test, and yeah. you're on the cocktail, and you're angry about it. But a lot of us, to be honest with you, myself included, is... You don't think about what it's like for your spouse when you're on the six-week cocktail because some asshole spit in your spit in your face with yeah. blood during a fight, and you might have a bloodborne issue. Well, you. now that affects your spouse's life, and we're often not that we're selfish, but during that moment, you're pissed off. It's about you. It's your body. You're angry. Yeah. Um, so now with that EAP being for the whole family. You know, you go to work or you go to the gym, your spouse can pick up the phone and have their own conversation, their own assistance that's given by your organization because of the problems that are created because right. of your spouse's role in your organization. So but I think it, that's it can a big be completely deal. separate from any uh, help you're getting. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a, another much better thing than uh, the military has. I don't, I don't think, I mean, we have a. A support when we're deployed there's yeah. uh there's support the best support comes from the unit itself if you if you work for a good unit um and they're sending guys out or maybe picking up the phone and see how the spouse is doing but uh they're starting to come along to include the spouses they i don't think they refer to them as dependent wives and dependent children anymore well, that's a dangerous <laughs> dangerous conversation <laughs> yeah every piece of paper i brought home wanting tam to sign it was I'm not a fucking dependent wife. <laughs> she had a potty mouth. Could have been a great cop. Um, oh, no. <laughs> no, she wouldn't have. She would have been beating heads left and right. Um, what advice do you have for uh, for members who are going through PTSD? Or Great question, Steve. Great question. <laughs> thought you'd never ask. It's actually, I think... Of all the conversations and the years I've done in peer support and the time in a military community yep. while policing, it's the thing I, I believe that's talked about the least that should be talked about the most. It's the greatest tool in the toolbox is what should you do throughout your career pre-OSI, PTSD, during or post. And I think personally I've found it and I think there's a ton of data and science behind it, is your job, 
although it's a career and it can be a passion, and some may even say that it's a calling, it's just a fucking job, right? You can care about it and you can make it very, very important. And for me, I've been up here 15 years. I love this community. I've coached in this community. I'm part of it. And people can still be like, oh, there's an asshole cop. But I'm like, I've coached, you know, 500 kids, soccer, like be part of your community. But the biggest thing I can say is what you're doing in your life that identifies you other than your job. Get involved in something else. When I was young, I identified myself as a police officer. I was proud of it. I was proud of the work we did. I was proud of the line I drew in the sand to protect uh, what was always perceived as the weak from the bullies. That I was proud of that. That was a big deal to me. As the years went on, uh, I realized that I wasn't changing the world. Like I didn't change it in that first year of policing. Like I promised myself I would, I was going to change the whole world. Yeah. And and the longer you go in these careers, you realize that uh, you could be 23 years on and now you're arresting the grandchildren of the guy you arrested, you know, 20 plus years ago. Like yeah. you can't, Society is society. It ebbs and flows. And if you hang your hat on what you do and that's all you have, your retirement day will come and you'll hand in your gun, and your badge or your military uniform and your you'll be tickle lost. trunk of all your toys that you should have yeah. given to somebody else. <laughs> um, and you look around at the four walls uh, in your home and go, oh shit, what am I? Yeah. And if you wait till the end of your career to be able to answer the question of who am I, you're probably in trouble. And so my biggest advice is hobbies. Have something that you identify yourself when somebody says, what do you love to do? It should not be, I love soldiering. Or I love policing. That's that's my job. I yeah. take great pride in, in how hard I work. Um, but what is it that you love to do? What is it that you do in your off time? And so my Biggest advice to anybody, regardless of your role in life, regardless of what your job is, is have something you're passionate about away from the job because that is what will get you through the tough days, whether that's woodworking, whether that's setting a goal and exercising to run Spartan races or be a bodybuilder or martial arts or be the the greatest dad, you know, whatever the case may be. Have a goal other than your job. Yeah, like... I no longer, when somebody says, what do you do? I no longer say, I'm a police officer, right? It's, I'm a husband, I'm a father, I try and do some martial arts, I love woodworking, and to pay the bills so I can do all those things, I'm a police officer. Yeah. So the greatest advice is have a hobby that you are more passionate about that hobby than you are your work, because that will as far as I'm concerned, lift you up during the dark times. It will give you something to focus on so that you're not coming home from work, waiting for the next shift and just drinking your way through it. Whether that's going into the shop and cutting sheets of plywood, whether that's turning wrenches on a car, whatever you love to do. That's a tough, that's do a, that. that's a tough thing for, for a lot of people to, uh, it's a tough thing for me. Yeah. I got on the ERT program in 2006. It was the, pinnacle of what I wanted to do in my job to do a tactical role search and rescue chase the dogs through the bush all this stuff and then 
for a lot of years, I made the mistake that that was my identity, not just outside of work, but inside of work, right? We right. wear a specialty crest. We wear different uniforms. The regular officers, a lot of the times who work way harder than we do uh, on a lot of the details that we go to look at you and they either want to be you or they think you're an asshole. Yeah. And whether you carry yourself like that or not, people will perceive what they want to be. I don't think I'm special. I do a specialty job. But oh, you're special. Look, well, I'm freaking special, all right. But people will look at you and think you're an asshole because you have something that they want. Yeah. And that stress I would take home. And the people around me didn't deserve Did that you uh, use mindfulness or anything to, um, as part of your toolbox? Are you a meditator or do you... Uh I, I could say I've tried it all. Yeah, uh, I'm not limber enough for yoga. <laughs> uh, There's a picture I didn't need. <laughs> Lululemons don't come in my size, but I would say mindfulness, not purposely, not that I went out. But we spend a great deal of time alone in a car when we're working. Mm -hmm. So whether you want to or not. You are connected to your thoughts and you're a slave to your thoughts. So you have 10 or 12 hours between calls to it's, it's be kind alone of an, with your own shit. It's kind of an oxymoron to say that uh, you don't practice mindfulness mindfully. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. not quite the way it works, but you found your own system. Yeah. But uh, in the last few years, I would say that I take a more purposeful approach to that. I actually think about the things that are going on. I'll visualize how that is happening, why it's happening, why I'm, you know, angry or why, you know, why I've missed three workouts or the different things that are important to me in my life. Uh, and I find that I, I more think of it as reflection. You're more thoughtful, if not mindful. I think with, with age comes the old wisdom of not allowing myself to get trapped back in that place that I know is not healthy for me. So I make sure I do the things that are healthy for me. Mindfulness, meditation, 100%, I believe that there's value in that. But I don't know if it's for everybody. I don't know if a lot of people can calm their mind to the point of deep thinking. Uh, a lot of times you close your eyes and you have great aspirations of being mindful and the dryer button buzzes or the yeah. dog barks or these different things. Well, but it's the monkey brain, getting that monkey brain under control. Yeah, and... So I think for a lot of people, it's extremely helpful. I just don't know for me if the meditation has worked yet the way that I would like it to work. I don't practice it. I don't put 15 minutes aside, but I know people who do and they put a mass amount of value in it yeah. and it works for them. And that's amazing because if it works for you, whether that's your mindfulness is at the gym, pushing bro weights, yeah. you know, or going for a run or being out, whatever that is, that, to me, that's all mindfulness Yeah, because you're, you're putting yourself in a position where you're at your healthiest to think about whatever it is you need to think about. Because let's be honest, you put earbuds on in the gym and you're pushing weight. You're probably thinking about everything that you need to think about at home or whatever, because that's, nobody's talking in your ear. It's your chance to solve problems and so, you know, whatever yeah, you need to solve. I don't, I just think of the workout. <laughs> I, I don't try to solve all any problems steps, eh? i have <laughs> the beach muscles all day long eh? you can't can't flex cardio in the bar punk <laughs> all right i got more questions for you uh sp speaking of civilians since you cops are a fairly closed-knit group what could a what, what could a civilian do to help 
you know, he, here he's coming up to with the cop, or a cop's coming up to him because you guys fucking won't let us alone, <laughs> and he's he's not minding he's not minding his own business. What what can what can the average Joe do to when he's interacting with the cop? Interacting as in an enforcement interaction, or are we talking about? Yeah, just I guess a it's kind of a narrow question for such a broad subject. Yeah, because I can go down both rabbit holes: the enforcement and just more the community. of just a community approach. So, like, you know that the civvy you're about to walk up to is nervous because you're walking up to him. Yeah. So, what what's his approach? I mean, your approach, I imagine, if you're not about to bust his head for something, is friendly and how you doing, Joe Citizen? Yeah. I think the biggest thing is right now with social media the way it is, North America losing their mind and lighting everything on fire. There's this stigma that. Every copper's out there hunting people down, hunting humans down. Most, if not all, that I've ever met have never been in that position, nor would be. It angers them what's going on. It angers them to be lumped in in some yeah. group. But but if I'm on foot patrol and I'm walking downtown, whatever town you live in, uh, I'm just another human being. I get that the uniform can be intimidating at times. It's got that enforcement aura about it that... Every time something bad happens, the popo shuts up, shows up and somebody getting arrested. But the reality is, is that 99% of our interactions do not end in enforcement. They are... How much? Probably 99% of all the calls I do yeah. will not end up in an enforcement. They are me being called to somebody's house on the worst day of their lives, dealing with their problems. But what I, what I think I want to tell people is... Just a human being. If I'm walking down the road, you're walking down the road, and you say hi, I'm going to say hi. I yeah. think that's great. Like, I don't want to be ostracized because of the uniform I wear. Uh, Sir Robert Peel said, the police are the community, and the community are the police. And I believe in that 100%. I've been community policing since I started. It was uh, the approach that I was taught. It's become a fucking buzzword. But the reality is, is that when I go out, I'm there to help. Whether that's you've dialed 911 and I'm here to help you do whatever, or whether somebody's a victim and I'm helping them. Yep. Every aspect of my job is helping. Yep, the enforcement of tickets, a lot of people go, well, that's bullshit. And you go, well, there's lots of other factors. There's f- fatalities we're trying to reduce. There's collisions we're trying to reduce. There's texting and driving. So they all have an enforcement. And to be honest, I don't know a lot of coppers that spend their day going, I can't wait to go to work and write tickets. It's just not... <laughs> Right, that's not normally what you join for. Reality is, why did you join? Why did I join? Yeah. Uh, I wouldn't say that it's to help everybody. Uh, I wanted to bust the shit out of bad guys. I watched my dad do it for X number of years in okay. Toronto as a beat copper, and he wanted to arrest bad guys so that good folks, especially low income folks in the communities that tend to have the highest yeah. level of victimization could live where they could actually walk to the corner store and not feel like they had to look over their shoulder all the time. And so there's lots of cliches reasons to join and they're cliche because most of them are what people say and what they believe. But I wanted, I wanted to bust bad guys. I wanted to make lock them up. Yeah. I wanted, I wanted to look them dead in the eye and say, you're a fucking bully. Uh, but I'm going to bully you. Like I'm going to take you to a place you don't want to go. Yep. because of what you've been doing to your community. And that still to this day, that's what I feel. I still feel like there is a, a large amount of uh, bad guys out there that 
are victimizing their communities, their neighborhoods. And I'm just not okay with that. I've just never been okay with that. And so I want to get them. All right. <laughs> That's pretty much what I would have said. <laughs> I want to bust some bad guys. Yeah. So, so to Joe Citizen on the street, who's walking towards you, you're like Jesus. You're just a guy. I'm just there. But just a guy. To be honest, to, ha- to stop and have a conversation, I think would go a long way because most of them would then, you know, I'm not officer so-and-so. I give you my first name. We can sit and have a chat about the weather. We could do whatever. And you're going to leave that conversation thinking, well, that's not what I thought. Yeah. And that's, that's a goal. That should be a goal for every police officer. But at the same time, I believe it's the duty of every citizen. Just because I wear the uniform, I shouldn't be the only people in a community looking out for that community. And so we should all, I may be the enforcement arm of the public safety sector of your community, but you should have just as much a role in keeping your community safe as I do. So if we have conversations and we talk and you're the owner of a, a shop and you say, oh, geez, all the kids are hanging out behind my shop every night. Well, I wouldn't have known that if you didn't stop and talk to me. So you can't complain about all the things that are happening at your shop if you don't stop and talk to me and tell me about it because then I could take action. So just stop and talk. Tell me what's going on. So to sort of sum up what you've said to this point, I don't know where we're at over an hour, 13 minutes, so we're doing all right, um, is from when you started to today, um, cops are able to get help for mental uh, injuries. Um, You think there's less of a stigma on it than there was when you first joined? That's would, fair to say. I would I would agree with that. And uh, to everybody else, you're just a citizen. Just yeah. Trying to do a job. I shop in your town. My kids play sports in your town. Just like everybody else, I have a job to do, and I do it. Fuck, you said that with heart, man. Yeah. <laughs> it's a dark one. But <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I got a tear coming up. <laughs> this, that, was, that was sincere shit. Um, so what's your favorite cop memory? Oh, God. I don't think we can audio record these things. <laughs> we haven't identified you. I don't know. To be honest with you, uh, unfortunately, a lot of the things that stick with you for a lot of years are the bad things. I didn't ask you about the fucking bad things because you don't want that question. What's your What's your good memory? I didn't give you any parameters <laughs> on questions. I'm looking at you with your full scat piece of paper. All I know is... Everybody fucking gets asked that question. What's your, what's the shittiest thing you've seen or done or whatever? And I just want to fucking strangle them. And, Everybody's uh, prepared for that question. Though. <laughs> what great things have you seen? I can't say for certain in the Rolodex of 23 years what the greatest policing memory. But I can, I can say with confidence, what is the greatest memory of where I feel the image that people had of me and the image they left was changed. And it was the first year that we did the military Ironman as the first civilians and coppers. Didn't you get a trophy for that? I have no idea. (laughs) But the canine handler and I uh, got three weeks notice to do the military Ironman. I had no idea what it was. I'd heard the, I'd heard the blast go off at three in the morning, several years prior to that. And I saw these crazy guys rocking, but I thought, yeah, absolutely. And I remember going in to the theater on base in uniform 
in greens. Yep. And the whole place went quiet. quiet. And they all turned and looked. Did we do it the same year? I can't remember. What, what year did you do it? You probably finished in that top half. I finished number 12. I dragged 12. my bloody carcass through the last half. <laughs> I was number 12, buddy. <laughs> so we, but you got a trophy. Yeah, participation. Participation <laughs> ribbon. They count, right? Mm-hmm. But I remember it went real quiet. And somebody said, oh, the fucking cops are here. <laughs> and being of good sense of humor, he started laughing. But that feeling of we were in a place that maybe we weren't welcome. We were told to be there and we were told by super important people. We were welcome. Yep. But the bottom line is we walked into an environment that wasn't ours to walk into. That was the feeling. And that feeling stayed right up until the cannon went off and there was not so many friendly people towards us. Fast forward nine plus hours later, the same, uh, I describe it as an asshole, that same guy that was quite arrogant to me at the starting line yep. about my position in life was at the finish line. And he shook my hand and he said, you fucking finished. I can't believe you finished. <laughs> I give you respect. And that moment to me was a moment that highlighted maybe hundreds of other moments in my life where what somebody perceived of me prior to and what they took away after was completely changed. And I changed, I felt I changed them. And so I'm that not to fully me, sure that you understand the word happy cop memory. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you rescued a puppy out of a tree. No, that's firefighters. Something. We don't do that shit. <laughs> but that would have been a good, uh, but, but being, when you look at what your identity is and you look at what your purpose is, if your purpose is to change people and to bring a more positive view on what you do for a living and that people trust you and people want to call you when they're in trouble, then that is a positive police memory. Because anytime you can change somebody, whether you go into a shithole community that's filled with folks that are abusing drugs, they're hooked on drugs, they don't want you around because that means they're not getting their fix. But you're looking at three-year-old kids or five-year-old kids that are growing up in that environment. You can't change that environment. But if you can make that kid smile and make them look at the police like they are, they are there to help, you've changed. You've changed their view of you, and that's a good police memory. There's nothing that stands out. We've done tons of rescues. We've done for search and rescue. We've done... Tons of things on the team that I'm on that I'm extremely proud of that I believe changed people's lives. But they don't always create this memory that I'm going to rah-rah till I'm 70 years yeah. old, right? Like, yep. So. I, I think the Iron Man is a good one. Kids, buddy coming up to you and shaking your hand and saying fucking well done. Yeah. That was that was the right thing to do. Yeah. Because he's been a dickhead in the beginning. I might have postured. <laughs> like I might have bladed. <laughs> I might have been ready. <laughs> All right. I hesitate to use these words, but you get the last word. Say what you got. Anything you want to say. Hi, Mom. <laughs> Hi, Steve's mom. <laughs> yeah. No, um, yeah, yeah. I appreciate the time. I think that these conversations that we're having and that you've been having with your other guests are important. I think that they're what will break down the stigma. I think that the the younger folks coming up in 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 our professions, military first responders, are entering a different world than we entered in. And even that, that we might leave in, but there are a ton of, 
great men and women in our jobs that are between that 50 and 30 year mark that are struggling, that, that still have that fear of the stigma. And I think it's important that some of the most respected people within your platoon, your company, your, your industry, whatever it might be, stand up, identify themselves as peer supporters, help people out, call people out, set up an environment where it's positive because no, I don't want to listen to all your problems all the time. And I, we all have the bitchers and moaners, but there's guys out there and girls out there that need help. And if they don't feel there's a place to go or their role models appear as if they don't believe that you should ever ask for help, we're doomed. So I think senior people need to step up, get into those positions because it doesn't mean that it needs to be all, you know, pansy type talk and materials and hugs and kisses, but we can have these tough conversations openly with peers that we respect that we believe are going to support us and we're going to save lives because I want to see everybody that is in my industry, policing, fire, ambulance, doctors, nurses, you know, military, whatever the end of their career is, whether it's 20 or 30 years, the goal is to make it to the end and collect your pension for longer than you ever paid into it. That's your fucking goal. And if I can help one person get to that goal, because today may be the shittiest day of your life, but tomorrow could be better. And it might be incremental. But if we can keep guys alive so they can get to a better place, then that's worth all the effort and all the, oh, I hope he doesn't think I'm a pansy for telling him. Like Those days, I think, are gone. And I think that the old guard if they get on board, can make a world of difference for the young people in these industries. Especially within the association, if they join within the association and yep. represent. Yep. Well, I think those were fine last words there, Pete. Um, I'd like to thank you for uh, for what you do, for your service, um, and appearing on Rock is Bacchus. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for having me. <laughs> well, that's a great name. Thank, thanks for being had. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, that's it now. Okay. You sure? You're going to press that button or I'm what? I'm pressing that button. <laughs>